Welcome to another edition of the Zeitcast. This is Jonathan Martin, and I'm so grateful that you've taken the time to join us today for part two of my conversation with Mike McCarg, better known as Science Mike. Wow, I just, I thought the first half of the conversation around COVID-19 was such a crucial one. But as much as I loved it, um, I think here's the content I've been most excited about you guys hearing. Just because I, I'm wildly enthusiastic about Mike's new book, uh, which is uh, coming out uh, here a little later in April, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. It is just a, uh, you know, we talked a little bit the other day about Mike's big, open, generous spirit and just everything that makes him who he is, is so kind of bound up in this very unique book. And uh, I think you're going to love it. So excited to talk about the book with him. Uh, these themes of shame, and I feel like his content on shame in the last few years has been some, just some of the most helpful things I've read, this idea that shame creates hiding and not wholeness, and even kind of getting in a bit to the the science of, of shame. Uh, outrage, uh, technology, uh, specifically our dependence on our phones, what's that is doing to us, how it's affecting uh, teenagers, children, and hey, maybe that relationship is all the more complicated in a time like now where we're so locked down, but I still think uh, maybe all the more so it makes us an important conversation to be having even in the midst of these things. So um, I, I think this is an episode you're going to really love. Thank you for all of you who like, share, review. Every bit of that is a big deal, but especially to our patrons who are making this possible that I can continue to speak into your lives and uh, that we can share this space together, um, even in the midst of so much ambiguity. What a, what a gift that is. So I am so grateful for each of you who are making this possible. And hey, if it feels like right now the podcast is ramping up a bit, you know, it feels like that to me too. I think that it just felt right uh, that this is a time where we need to lean in a bit to each other and wanting to have on some voices that are familiar, that are trusted, that are especially helpful, that comfort us in the ways we need to be comfort right now, uh, but also maybe challenge us in ways that we need to be challenged too. Um, I can just tell you that even in the next few days, I've got some really amazing things in store that I really think you guys are uh, I just, I just think it'll, it'll speak to your soul. At least that's what I'm hoping for. I know these conversations are shaping my own. So, uh, once again, we're so grateful to have Mike McCarg with us for part two, and I hope you enjoy today's edition of the Zycast. My book, um, accidentally is, is just a really great resource for this moment in history. I obviously did it and couldn't plan it. Mm -hmm. uh, but a book that's about understanding and processing and connecting with your feelings in a way that helps you behave, uh, shape your behaviors. I don't want to say the word behave because that can get misconstrued, but shape your behaviors in a way that better supports your flourishing and your social engagement. <laughs> yeah. It's a good thing to talk about right now. Oh, so important. And I thought that reading it, that uh, knowing you hadn't planned it that way, that almost feels not trying to sound neo-Calvinist here, but almost feels providential the way like, oh, this is just the kind of resource people need in this moment. I feel like, you know, um, there are a number of different through lines in the book that um, that communicated to me in a powerful way, but I think maybe more than anything, and I was at the liturgist gathering in Nashville over a year ago, and I remember even the talk you gave there, just how much the content stuck with me. Hmm. But I feel like the stuff that you 
the stuff that you say in the book about shame, about how it, it, that's just uniquely powerful to me. This idea of how shame only creates hiding and not wholeness. Mm-hmm. And your bravery to be willing to share some of the most personal, you know, I don't know. I feel like there's certain kinds of stories of shame that are sort of acceptable to share. But I feel like you're not unwilling to go into the like the the you know the quirkiest stuff, and which is you know ironically, I guess that was Mr. Rogers' quote to begin with that Henri Nouwen picked up that sort of that which is most personal is the most universal that makes me feel the most seen and known. When you talk about the ways that you'll kind of you know places you'll kind of retreat into, like yes, yes, that's me. Here are the ways that I do that. But I just felt that was such a powerful through line in the book in terms of really giving people the resources to deal with shame. You know, I realized this book changed so much as I wrote it. Um, mm. But one thing I realized at the very start, uh, the very first pages I wrote, was that I'm not a science educator, though I wish I was. And to some degree, I am. But there are better science communicators than me. Um, and I'm not a theologian. I'm not a preacher. Um, I, and I couldn't figure out why so many people of different backgrounds appreciate my work. Hmm. And I realized when I started to write this book that the one thing I seem to be gifted at is admitting things about myself that other people are afraid to admit. Yeah. Out loud. Yeah. Um, and so um, this book is no exception to that. And, and I don't do this uh, to be like an emotional exhibitionist. I don't do this because I crave social attention or validation. Quite the contrary. I'm horrified at both of those things. I, I certainly don't want to be famous. I um, I prefer to be, you know, alone in my office most of the time. Mm. Um, but I have found that in my life, there's been so many moments where I felt such a deep sense of shame over something I believed or did or felt. I thought maybe I was the only person who'd ever lived who was so terrible and who was so awful and who had who had done or thought this terrible thing or felt this terrible thing. And when for, for the first time in my life I shared one of those things that I had stopped believing in God, I found in fact that um many people had had a similar journey to me uh but had been afraid to say it out loud. And that by saying it out loud, not only was I liberated when I realized what I feared would not happen, I did survive, I did make it, but I actually found that by sharing difficult things, other people begin through a sense of simple solidarity to feel better about their own lives and their own feelings. So when I, I, I feel like a hypocrite as I write this book, if I say like shame is bad and then try to hide from the reader. <laughs> mm, right, right. So that's that's kind of where uh, that approach comes from. And you've read the book. There are things here that are difficult to read. Um, there's a there's a degree of honesty, uh, very sincere, non-performative honesty in this book. But the reason it's shared is first I tell you a thing that was difficult, and then I tell you why it was difficult. And then I tell you some things I learned from people smarter and more wise than myself that helped me to cope with that and to grow and to change. And I try to do this in a way that's not prescriptive. What what my process in this book, it should not be your process in your life. 
but it's merely to give that sense of solidarity and hope that the things that make us feel overpowered, the things that make, that seem too big and too scary to deal with, and especially the shame that so often separates us from other people, that in fact those things can be faced, they can be addressed, and they can be managed in a way that allows us to accept ourselves and to connect with people in honesty and sincerity and true intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the more, um, and I love the fact, and I know you talk about this kind of at the beginning and the end of the book, but the way that the process of writing, and I so appreciate this approach, um, that there was, um, that you really were on a journey and a lot change in your own life. And there, there is that sense of self-discovery, even kind of as the, as the texts are unfolding, it's like, Oh, and, um, you know, I felt that, that kind of revelatory experiential, you know, coming into some of these places, but it just, it was very powerful to me because the deeper you were able to go to those places, the more it kind of forces us as your readers to kind of go to those places in, in, in ourselves mm. and bring them into the light. And I just really don't, don't even know how to say to you just how meaningful that was mm. to feel like some of those things were pulled up in me, you know, and that, that even are still there kind of in, um, quiet ways that I've learned to suppress or, you know, but, but the way that we're kind of being unearthed in the book in a way that brings light and healing and wholeness, it's just, really, really an important resource. So thank you so much for being willing to go there for us in that mm. way. Mm. Yeah, that was, it's my honor. It's truly my honor. Um, I got, uh, there, there's a thing that happens um, when I go to events and someone will come up to me and they will say, I know you get tired of hearing this, but your book really helped me. Mm. And I thought, and I say now, how on earth could I get tired of hearing that my work has an, an impact on someone? How many of us just dream of a moment like that in our lives? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the, what's amazing about our world, um, I didn't invent any of this. So what has happened is I've seen other people be honest and be vulnerable and share and teach in ways that help me grow. And I was so inspired by them that I sought to emulate uh, great heroes and masters of my life. Mm. And then a funny thing happens as I do that, uh, people are inspired by me. And so what excites me about uh, this process um, is the, the way that I know that other people will encounter my work and then they'll, they'll think, well, maybe I could do something like that. And, you know, you know my friend Hillary McBride, who is just this this treasure of, of our species. And I've watched the way that she lives her life in emotional presence and the way it transforms those around her, not because she tries to rescue them, yeah. but simply because the way she relates to others inspires people to try to be uh, more like that. And I'm just so aware these days at how the best thing we can do with our time here in this world and in this life is to try to do the work of being whole, healthy, and responsible people, a, a task which, by the way, never gets done. And the process of doing that creates these ripples through society. So, you know, if I'm discouraged by 
President Trump and his response to coronavirus and his way of living and being, I could devote all my time and energy to critiquing him. And I, I, I'm not afraid to critique the president as appropriate sure. and necessary. It is. But I don't put the majority of my energy there. I put the majority of my energy into living in a different way that creates a different set of ripples through our social fabric. And um, what, a, what a gift and what a treasure it is to be a part of that process. Mm. Well, I, you know, the book already is a treasure to me and I know it will be a gift to so many people. I'm just, I'm thinking about some of the things because I feel like you have, you offer such unique perspective here precisely because there's never a sense of judgment. There's never a trace of moralism, but you know, I thought a lot about not only the things I felt like were being unearthed in me, but because at this point in my life, um, I mean, I never, you know, I'm, I'm divorced. I don't have biological kids, but I'm in love with somebody who does have, who has four of them. So that's radically changed mm -hmm. my life. Mm -hmm. And thinking a lot about, you know, like the sections, and I don't know if I'm, you know, if the tent is too broad here, but everything from when you're talking about porn and rats to, I love the whole chapter of the machines are winning because it, all of it just puts me, just makes me think about conversations that, and I don't think she'd mind me saying her name, uh, but with this 15 year old that I cherish, Caitlin, and thinking a lot about this conversation about, cause it's like, okay, none of this is coming from the kind of holiness, you know, repent or go to hell kind of stuff that I come from, but having this real fear for people around me in terms of seeing what um, our kind of, you know, the, the, our compulsion to our phones is able to do of us and see what, pornography is doing to us and none of that coming from a place that's moralistic or judgmental or any of that but just the sense of what's healthy and what's not those were also themes of the book that i just found to be profoundly powerful and i find coming up in conversations that i'm having with the people that i love the most the goal in sharing all that and the the science around it was to liberate people from a sense of individual moralism Individual moralism is a crippling way to live because it means your behaviors, good or bad, they're all on you completely. And a matter of moral failing, whether you have the willpower or not to control yourself in a given situation. And what I found is that as I looked into that into using the sciences is that it's total hogwash. There's mm. just, there's no truth to that notion. The parts of us uh, the individual, the kind of seat of consciousness, is just little tiny patches of brain tissue. You know, you could you could fit everything in your body that's involved in your consciousness easily in a shot glass. Um, and so, well, what is the rest? We have all these internal systems that, that have been created to help us survive, by the way. Yeah, that guide our emotions, the guide our behaviors, guide our thoughts and feelings. And those are all those systems are then steered and conditioned by massive, massive stimulus coming from the external world. Things like media, things like uh, processed foods, things like um, makeup, like all these things. Uh, co-opt our survival mechanisms and then shift and guide our behaviors. And my goal with this book is to liberate people from the notion that you are a person that is a result of your will or your, mm. your force of personality 
or your moral rightness, because that's just not true. Instead, your feelings and your behaviors emerge from a complex interaction of internal dynamics that most of us have no aware of and external dynamics that we pay no attention to. And the goal of this book is to help people more thoughtfully curate those external factors that influence their behavior, doing so with eyes open by making choices, and to be more aware of those hidden internal processes in a way that allow us to self-condition towards more wholesome behaviors, towards more satisfying ways of living and being, and a more grounded and full sense of connection with self. Mm. Mm. That's so important. And maybe even to delve into just kind of the guts of that a little bit more, um, because I do feel like, and you know, it's, an, again, an interesting moment where um, some of us are experiencing a sort of kind of, or most of us are experiencing a certain kind of physical isolation. But this whole idea, because I felt like, I, and you know, I've read a lot of Sherry Turkle and other people who've been helpful, but there, in terms of just exactly how you express the ways in which, you know, the way we use our phones and our electronics creates a kind of chemical dependency that's unhelpful. And maybe I am thinking about that because I'm having conversations where I'm trying to like engage this with a 15 year old that I care about. I'd just love if you could say a little bit about that, especially in terms of why it is or how it is that this technology that theoretically should make us feel so much more connected is leading us to a place where people are experiencing more and more a sense of profound isolation in many cases. Yeah. So in our brain body systems, we have a series of natural impulses to seek out things that help us survive. And we're a social animal. So social signals are a major source of behavioral impulse for us. Um, there's a theory put forward by a man named Nico Tinbergen that um, there uh, are, are a series of stimulus-based mechanisms within every organism that dictate behavior. And uh, when he realized this, he called it his hierarchical model of behavior. Uh, he then began to do experiments about what would happen if you like forced stimulus that was bigger than what happened in the natural world. And what an early experiment there was to take a bird's egg that was wooden, only larger than a normal bird's egg, and painted a brighter shade of blue than a natural bird's egg and put it into a bird's nest and see what happens. And it turns out like other birds have learned over millions of years that uh, bigger, brighter eggs usually mean healthier chicks. And so they found this mother would ignore her real eggs to try to take care of a fake egg, which is a strange th thing to realize. But it's because the, the stimuli was super normal. It was bigger than normal. We call that super normal stimulus. And then we look at our phones uh, and the brightness and the vivid nature of the screen. And we realize that they arrest our senses in a way that things in the natural world cannot. They can give us this high fidelity stereo sound magically through little buds we stick in our ears. And they can take us to other places. We also understand through the sciences that compulsions are behaviors that allow us to medicate anxiety. And so when we're worried whether we're loved and whether we belong, we have these devices in our pockets that can go, mm, mm, mm. and that might mean someone likes us, literally. Someone might have liked something we did online, or it might mean that, you know, we're past due on a bill. 
And the strange thing about the way our brains are structured is we seek out potential rewards above guaranteed rewards. That's why Las Vegas stays open. And so we get this pattern of, of craving and compulsion seeking this cycle of escape through our smartphones because of its notifications. Uh, and those things kind of come together uh, with a tendency to have us feel like we're doing a lot of things at once and are more productive and create this extremely dangerous and weaponized relationship with these devices that pulls us out of presence with real people and causes a genuine measurable mental health epidemic. Now, as I say this, I can already hear people click, 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 click. But Mike, uh, I was able to connect with people at a time that I felt ashamed online in a way I couldn't with real people. Or, but Mike, I'm disabled. I have social anxiety disorder. Or I have a physical disability that means it's difficult for me to be with people in person. I am not saying phones are bad or social media is evil. Uh, One of my biggest concerns in this book is being conflated with this kind of moralism. What I am saying is the science is irrefutable that our current relationship with these technologies is causing more harm than good. And so our goal should be not to like destroy all phones or get off of social media, but instead to thoughtfully curate our relationship with these technologies that allow us to maximize the benefits while minimizing the detriments. Hmm. That's really, really helpful. That's so helpful. And I mean, difficult, I think, in terms of requiring us to come to a place of discernment where it's not sort of either or you know, <laughs> yeah, right. this is entirely good or bad, kind of dualistic thinking. Um, I, I think in that same spirit, as you talk about some of the unique challenges of the digital age, I was also so struck by just not only the way you talk about how phones and our technology are, are impacting our lives in that way, but what you had to say about outrage and kind of the way the algorithms have a way of uh, prioritizing outrage. All of that is really fascinating to me. Well, outrage is, it feels good. If you're outraged morally, then you're part of a social group that is condemning the action of another person, which means you're on the inside and they're on the outside. Mm. Uh, now, don't, don't hear me wrong. Moral outrage is, is necessary and appropriate. It's an essential part of human civilization. You should be outraged when injustice happens. Uh, My problem is not with the fact that moral outrage exists. My problem is the way that technology companies use algorithms to monetize outrage Mm. in a way that amplifies our experience of it uh, while not necessarily enable us to address the source of the outrage, especially more meaningfully, all the while marginalized people who often uh, lead advocacy movements online get none of the financial rewards from their efforts. And instead, that turns into ad revenue that makes libertarians in Silicon Valley more wealthy. That's Mm. extremely unjust and corrupt system. Uh, And so, you know, addressing that and and having a more thoughtful approach to online outrage and online advocacy in a way that acknowledges where the real work is being done. Uh, The Me Too movement was not created by people who write code at Twitter in the Bay Area. The Me Too movement was created by women who've experienced assault. And why I wrote I wrote about in that book, out of a sense of my own outrage about the way that our legitimate outrages are being stolen, monetized, and used uh, to manipulate us towards the ends of media. Mm. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Oh. And, and, and just, and I feel like, you know, you capture that in the book, just the promise and the peril of these platforms. I mean, of course, it's amazing when people who have kind of been on the underside are able to utilize this technology in a way to where people are able to hear a story that they would not have otherwise heard. But when these things are weaponized against us, and especially with um, tremendous economic resources about them to sort of pull the outrage levers, um, it becomes a whole different thing. Yes, yes. Two things are true. Number one, I wouldn't know who Austin Channing Brown was without Twitter. I would I would never Mike, encounter. Mike, can you still hear me? Yeah, I hear you. You not hear me? I see the little uh, waveform, like the server is hearing me. I am here. I'm going to put a chat so you can hear me. Uh, I am here, and I can hear you. Okay. You can uh, you can talk. I can hear you. I can type my Reese. Oh, hey, I can hear you fine now. Oh, so sorry. I think that was just a. I actually think I knocked the um, the cord out of my headphones. Oh, great, great. <laughs> As I'll do what I'm talking, I make big physical <laughs> gestures. I mean, that's that's, that's <laughs> so marvelous. That's really funny. Like <laughs> I was into it, so I kind of like cast the auxiliary cord aside. That's the best. <laughs> so you were saying sorry <laughs> i was saying uh i wouldn't know who austin channing brown was without twitter yeah that's right what what would i trade that for literally nothing mm. and there have been times when my sense of moral outrage on social media because it happens so intensely and so often has sapped my emotional resiliency and paralyzed me taking me out of action and yeah. into despondency and that was great for twitter because it meant i hit refresh a lot and i looked at a lot of ads that's the cycle i'm talking about so am i leaving twitter no absolutely not what i'm doing is being doing the work of becoming more aware of my emotions to become aware when i'm in a cycle of perpetual moral outrage without action moral outrage without action is meaningless um and limiting the amount of time i spend on these platforms so i'm still on facebook i'm on instagram i'm on twitter a few minutes a day i'm not on there uh all day every day and i understand that some people who have uh, physical access limitations they would spend a higher percentage of their time on social media uh but they even more than me would need to be emotionally grounded and aware of the predatory ways in which these algorithms display information. And I'm always encouraging for people to look at alternative means of curating and engaging their social media experience. It is great for Facebook and Twitter if you go online and debate people or fight people about uh, their actions in the world. What we're seeing from studies right. is that's not like especially impactful and changing behaviors, but it does make you very frustrated and make Facebook a very wealthy company. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's, and I love that so much, Mike. It's like, I think what's complicated of course, is that, you know, there, there's a lot of discernment that goes into you making those kind of decisions for yourself. And uh, in terms of people just coming to a place 
where we're able to discern how to self-regulate in that way seems really, really complex to me. It is. Yeah, there's there's no question. Um, I, I, you know, the book would sell a lot more copies if I had a 10-step plan to simple action. <laughs> yeah. And I yeah. do not. What this book is, it tries to give you the information to begin a process of making decisions for yourself about how you'll curate your life and your experiences. Mm-hmm. Which I think it does in such a, in such a beautiful way. Um, I had, again, I, a lot of highlights, a lot of notes, all that. I would feel like I would be sort of remiss in a conversation of the book to not at least ask you about. I mean, I, it certainly, uh, and not try to go someplace super emotional, but both from the initial dedication, then all the way to the end, um, there were so many ways that I felt just sort of your reverence and your love for Rachel Held Evans, um, of course, was such a dear friend to to both of us. And precisely because I feel like that shadow is so big in a wonderful way across the book, I want to at least ask you a bit about what it was like for you to, in the same time, while a lot of things are changing, you talk a lot about stuff you were learning about yourself and Um, kind of even within your own family context, how you're working these things out, but processing Rachel's death in the midst of all this and, and, and just what that's meant for you and what that looks like for you now. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it will. um, I don't know if that's just a permanent part of my life. Um, Every time I talk with someone, who knew her well. Um, that's what we talk about. Yeah. Every, every time, you know, um, the lock screen on my phone is a portrait of Rachel. And every time I pick my phone up, I say, Hey, Rach, <laughs> mm. I just, I just miss her really badly every day. And, um, it's complex because I miss the public figure who did so much good and made such a difference. And I just miss my friend. Yeah. Somehow Rachel had this uh, spidey sense. And she knew when I'd had enough. And she knew when I was feeling down. And she would just text or call out of nowhere and say, I was just thinking about you. (laughs) Hmm. And I've talked with, I don't know, 18 or 20 other people who had that same experience. Yeah. And my faith is complex. I'm kind of known for it. And I know that maybe the most Christ-like person I've ever met with was Rachel. And um, the dedication to the book uh, is for Rachel Held Evans, who helped me and millions of others find home. And uh, the book ends with the story of me getting on an airplane and getting an email from Sarah Bessie telling me that Rachel uh, was dead. And 
I couldn't write a book about being more present with our feelings without admitting that probably the major feeling I have felt in this time since she has passed is grief. Uh, and it has not gone away. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I still miss Rachel every single day. And, uh, I can feel a performative pressure on myself to try to put, put a bow on it. And, uh, I think that would be a disservice to the listener because there's, there's no bow on grief when people we love who mean a lot to us die and are not with us anymore. Our bodies hurt in that loss and they hurt for a long time. Yes. Although I tell you, without um, without any sense of performative pressure or trying to put a bow on it, I just I think one of the things I felt even in reading it was that um, you know before you kind of brought it back around to talk a little bit, Rachel, at the end, that whole idea of even the communion of the saints—that is, I'm reading these ideas and I'm reading these words that make me feel seen and known in places that otherwise I struggle to feel seen and known how much that, you know, just reminds me of her, reminds me of her friendship and the way her words spoke to us and feeling like that somehow, in some mysterious way, however we work into that out, that somehow this is part of the same project, you know, and that this is somehow like deeply connected to this person and that, you know, I don't know, there's something in that that's not lost that was really powerful for me also in, in reading the book is just um, how present her concerns. And cause I thought that is what she did for people is for folks that, you know, um, otherwise just didn't really feel seen. She had this way of making them feel so seen and she certainly did that for me. So thank you for, I don't know, just allowing that grief to be present in the book in a way that I, I, I feel like still just, carries her story and carries her message forward in such, in such crucial ways. I, uh, I was just losing my faith in 2010. She was, she was publishing evolving in monkey town. Yeah. Uh, I am four years older than Rachel. Uh, almost precisely. We were both born in June. Um, and she's just so damn smart and so um, spiritually in tune and so emotionally aware that she rocketed through uh, both the joy of the Christian faith and the dangers of American Christianity. And she was talking about it before anybody was at scale. And she led yeah. the way for all of us. That's right. And, um, I, I, I did reflect as I was writing the book, how the, I think the first person I ever really heard tell the truth like that in media was Rachel. Mm. Um, and she had this way of teaching, um, that didn't involve standing over others in authority. 
but standing with them in solidarity. And, um, yeah, I'd be happy if, if all I do is carry on that great tradition. Well, you certainly are my friend. And I feel like, um, not just trying to make a plug. I feel like the book is, is, is so important and will be so crucial for people's lives. So I certainly will be duly evangelistic about it. Um, so <laughs> thank you for just for, again, for pouring so much of yourself into it. That really comes through in terms of that. This comes from really deep soul places and by being so transparent about your own soul's journey, inviting us along that journey with you. And that's just a, that's just a real gift, my friend, especially at a time like this. So mm. I'm especially grateful that I read this book precisely when I did. Mm. So thank you, Jonathan. Yeah. Well, thank you for this time, man. It's been so, it's been so rich. Mm. Mm. For me too. For me too. I tell you what, maybe uh, sometime we're not making a podcast. I'd love to have you over for a FaceTime drink. <laughs> That'd be great. What is, what's wrong with FaceTime drinking? I love this phenomenon. It's amazing. <laughs> That's the only thing, you know, like I'm not pushing back on any like mandates, but in this whole distinction between essential and non-essential businesses, I'm like, um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure our local uh, liquor stores are probably in the essential categories. Like, I understand salons and theaters, but <laughs> here in here in Southern California, they put liquor stores in the essential business category. Did they really? That's great. They did. <laughs> okay, great. SoCal's got Another... to get a drink on. Another way you guys are ahead of us in Oklahoma because <laughs> that's still indistinct here <laughs> in the Dust Bowl. So <laughs> that's and awesome. Pac-Bay, you can um, in LA they've you could get it delivered. So you go over a liquor liquor store and they've expanded the number of liquor delivery licenses during this period. Wow, so. that really I didn't know that. That actually is amazing to me. Welcome to California. <laughs> that's fantastic. I love it. Oh, that's so great. Well, uh, thank you for the gift of the conversation today, my friend. It's been so good. And thank you for the book. What's the release date again? April 28th, 2020. April 28th. Okay. Well, it is a gorgeous, gorgeous book. And I certainly want everybody I know to read it. Um, so and I'll, I'll, I'll still be putting the word out there uh, in any way that I can. But thank you again for the gift of this conversation, my friend. It's been so, so good. Thank you, Jonathan. And thank you guys for tuning in for another edition of the Zeitcast.